Welcome to episode 19 of the third season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. The federal government and the heritage minister, Pablo Rodriguez, appear to be taking their sweet time bringing in their new law to curtail free speech on the internet. And when I say sweet time, I mean it. The delay is sweet because maybe, just maybe, free speech advocates are not going to like what they finally come out with, so any delay is good. One of the things the government did, which has apparently slowed things down, is appoint a panel of experts back at the end of March to come up with recommendations on how to exert control over platforms which perhaps allow the populace too much freedom. And recently, they've come out with some of those recommendations. On May 11th, in a Canadian press article appearing on the CTV site, they said, well, let me read the headline and opening paragraph to give you an idea of what is going on here. The headline, quote, Advisory panel calls for the Liberals' online hate law to cover Airbnb, comma, video games, unquote. And now the opening paragraph, quote, an expert panel tasked with helping to shape a federal bill to curb online hate suggests it cover Airbnb, the vacation rental booking site, as well as video games and even private communications online. Unquote. Wait, what? Even private communications online? That sounds fairly ominous. What say you, John? Does that sound ominous? Well, it sure does, but it's not unexpected when you consider the panel appointed March 30th to look at uh, curbing online harmful content. Uh, in, in February, the uh, federal government released a report called What We Heard, the government's proposed approach to address harmful content online. And uh, so on the 30th of March, the federal government announced an expert advisory group to provide the Minister of Canadian Heritage with advice on how best to design legislative and regulatory framework to address harmful content online. Now, the supposed targets are in five areas of what they call harmful content, and those five are terrorist content, content inciting violence, hate speech, sharing intimate images non-consensually, and child exploitation. What's interesting about those five things is all five of them are already illegal, and there okay. are already laws so I'm going to go through these. Uh, th this is a, a very dangerous trend that is uh, moving us away from the free society and towards uh, ultimately becoming a totalitarian slave state where the government controls and manages us like farm animals. We're far from that point. We st obviously, the, this podcast exists, so we still have you know a lot of free speech left over. I'm not suggesting we're there. I'm suggesting, though, that we're moving in that direction. And one of the ways that uh, anti-freedom politicians and bureaucrats and activists and so-called experts do this is by getting more and more laws and regulations covering it so that you, you can't 
you can't speak a word, you can't think a thought, you can't make a move, you can't do anything without encountering laws and regulations everywhere. There's more and more laws to think of to, um, to take into account. Well, I just wanted to ask you, you've said often on this program that the government never takes away a right without offering some kind of good reason for it. We and want to protect exactly, you. We want to well, protect you like. from harm. Aww. Yeah, so they listed Isn't that a bunch nice? of harms. Yeah, they listed a bunch of harms that are already illegal. Yeah. But, you know, but now we have to yeah, we have to start regulate government has to regulate the in- internet to protect you from these harms. So I'll go through them briefly. So terrorist content. Okay, terrorism is illegal. You cannot blow up uh, airplanes or bridges or take people hostage or utter threats or kidnap people. Uh, anything like that is illegal. Plotting and planning terrorism is also illegal if you communicate with somebody else in person or by phone or whatever, and you plan terrorist activities. That uh, planning a criminal activity is also illegal. So you've already got laws, uh, terrorist content online, you know, and it's not as if, uh, unless they're really stupid terrorists, they're, they're not right. going to set up a website and have this like public chat, like an open chat room, right? They're going to talk to each other uh, quietly about what they want to do. So we don't need extra legislation to protect us from terrorist content because terrorism is already illegal and serious terrorists uh, that are not stupid are not going to uh, post their content online for all to see. So we don't need further laws. Uh, we, we don't need to uh, regulate the internet in the name of stopping uh, terrorism. And, right. and by the way, police can also get through proper judicial process, police can get a, a search warrant. Uh, if police have reasonable grounds to believe that a, let's call him John Smith, John Smith is plotting terrorism, they can go to court and they can get the approval of a judge to do surveillance and they can, you know, monitor John Smith's emails. But unlike the freezing of bank accounts in February that was just done willy-nilly by by declaration of the prime minister that a group that he didn't like declares them to be criminals and, you know, and that's it and all the banks uh, start to comply with the prime minister's edict. Uh, if you wanted to do surveillance on the emails of a suspected terrorist, the police would have to get a court order to violate that privacy and only of that individual. And a lot of this lone wolf stuff uh, tends to not be foreshadowed a lot. Uh, you know, the thing might pop up uh, just as the perpetrator is going out to do his dastardly deeds and people find it after the fact. Already and the, the laws already allow. I mean, if, if if somebody says on the internet, if if somebody has a website and they say, you know, to, like uh, tomorrow at twelve noon, I'm going to go to some mosque or church or synagogue or temple or shopping mall, and I'm going to go kill a bunch of people. I mean, you know, if somebody types that on their website, uh, other people will notice. Uh, somebody hopefully will call the police. Uh, the police might you know, try to find out where the person lives, go to his house, whatever, right? Like we don't need the help of the federal government to protect us. Uh, we've already got laws against uh, terrorism and violence. So that pretty much covered. The second one is content inciting violence. Inciting violence is illegal. Um, mm-hmm. If I say that a certain individual or a certain group of people that, that they should all be murdered, that can get into, uh, that's already the uh, criminal code uh, offense, uh, as I understand it. 
Thirdly, they want to protect us from hate speech. Well, we've got Section 319 of the Criminal Code that makes it a criminal offense to willfully promote hatred against an identifiable group on the basis of uh, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, etc. So there's a bunch of grounds. So it's so, covered there. So it's covered there. Any any person that, you know, on a blog is saying, you know, death to the fill-in-the-blanks name of group uh, can already be charged with with hate speech for, for publicly inciting that. So we don't need further laws when hate speech is illegal in Canada. Next one, sharing intimate images non-consensually. Okay, I confess I have not uh, brushed up on the law on this, but I would venture a guess that's probably illegal already to uh, you know take a photograph. I think it's of, been prosecuted under harassment laws, hasn't it, or something? Probably, to that yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I think there's I, been I, cases already. I apologize to the listeners. I haven't you know haven't brushed up on that point, but I, I think sharing intimate images non-consensually, okay, that's probably a crime. You've heard of people getting into trouble by forwarding nude photographs of of somebody else or whatever. So, and then mm-hmm. child exploitation. Uh, whether that means child pornography or trying to lure children into prostitution or whatever, those are crimes already. So all mm. these pretexts, all these excuses, oh, we got to regulate the internet because we got to protect Canadians from terrorist content, content inciting violence, hate speech, uh, non-consensual sharing of, uh, of intimate images and child exploitation. Those are all crimes. Uh, if you use the internet right now to do any of those five things, you're going to get into trouble with police. Well, I don't think these 12 experts are saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in that May 11th story, and it's not surprising, they're actually talking about, oh, yeah, we should, you know, the, the federal government should regulate Airbnb and we should regulate video games and even private communications. I mean, well, you yeah, know, that's, as I was saying uh, to someone else, you know, I don't know whether people care that much about Airbnb and video games, but everybody has online private communications, you know, so that's kind of not really burying the lead because it is in the same paragraph. But to me, that's the, I guess I would call that the lid to the Pandora's box that uh, they are attacking there. So, I mean, that's just everything, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how they would do that as well. You know, would they basically have just one giant warrant to cover, you know, the entire country with uh, keywords being triggered? I thought they did this anyway, but. Uh. There's also there's also human rights laws. I mean, you take Airbnb. It's a business. Okay, mm-hmm. if it's based in San Francisco, I don't think the uh, Canadian government has any authority over it. But, you know, if there's local Airbnb businesses, if they are publishing discriminatory, uh, you know, we want to rent out our apartment only to white people or only to black people or only to black francophone Muslim lesbians in a wheelchair, anything like that would be contrary to the Human Rights Act. So you could already get in trouble anyway uh, under current human rights legislation for any business to be advertising and and having discriminatory advertising on on its website so that's that's also already covered but the language is clever i mean listen to listen to pablo rodriguez uh this is quoted in a uh, march the 30th minister. the minister of of uh, canadian heritage if it's illegal in person it's illegal online 
says Rodriguez, quote, Canadians want the government to play a role, but especially, especially when it comes to standing up for the communities who suffer the most from harmful content online, such as racialized Canadians, LGBTQ plus communities, and religious minorities. Okay. Let's assume for a fact, and I think it's, let's just take it for granted uh, that, that some people are harmed more than other people, okay? Even if that's true, I go back to my point, we have existing laws that are applicable to to everybody that, you know, against terrorism, uh, against hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. So the rhetoric of the minister sounds nice, but I don't think it's a good pretext, a good reason, a good excuse for having more government control over the internet, because what's that going to do? It's going to have a chilling effect, and it's going to lead to uh, censorship of ideas that the politicians in power disagree with, because hate speech is a speech that Prime Minister Trudeau hates. Hate speech is what uh, the speech that Minister Pablo Rodriguez hates. Yeah, anything that challenges their political inclinations is uh, pretty much, I would say, hate. Looks like they're what they're doing when they're targeting Airbnb and Peloton is they're looking to go after the smaller platforms, right? You know, so that's what they kind of initially everybody was talking about, you know, Twitter and Facebook and these great behemoths of uh, online chatter. But now they want to start looking at smaller servers, you know, where people are communicating for commerce or exercise or things like this. And then, of course, the next step down is those personal communication, online communications, whether it be messenger or, you know, even email, I suppose. But anyways, it looks like we're getting close to having this bill come out. It's been controversial for a while. What kind of charter violations would we be looking at here? Do you see any, foresee any charter violations in this law that they are preparing, other than, I suppose, well, they would be attacking speech in every form, wouldn't they? Yeah, I'm not sure if it would attack other charter rights and freedoms. It might touch on freedom of association as well, but primarily they're gearing up for further violations of our freedom of expression, and uh, it's going to cover the entire Canadian public. Uh, The biggest uh, violations of freedom of expression currently are the ones that the colleges of physicians and surgeons all across Canada are imposing on medical doctors who up until two years ago, doctors were free to debate and they did debate the efficacy or lack thereof of various treatments and various solutions to various diseases and how are various diseases best treated? How are they best prevented? And the college was not an enforcer that jumped into debates and declared the truth with a capital T uh, on threat of sanction against any doctor that disagreed with whatever the, the, the college happened to believe. So the college appropriately limited itself to enforcing ethics. So, for example, a, a medical doctor should never have sex with his patients, being one example of an ethical breach. And there's others, uh, you know, pressuring a patient to get a treatment when there isn't the uh, full informed voluntary consent, uh, massively violated by the medical establishment today uh, vis-a-vis the new COVID vaccines. Uh, But in any event, what I'm saying is the freedom of expression of doctors is threatened if they speak about COVID or treatments for COVID 
the, if they speak about lockdowns, the new COVID vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. Are these uh, colleges covered by the charter or is it human rights legislation, just to be clear on that? They must Another- comply with the charter. And so okay. when we, and the Justice Center is defending doctors all over Canada and in our uh, defense of these doctors' free expression rights, we remind the colleges that they are governed by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and they have they have no right to censor the speech of doctors on matters of of scientific debate, and it's it's simply uh, it's a huge violation of the charter when a college declares the truth with a capital T and then actually uh, prosecutes disciplines. Uh, threatens to kick out of the profession any doctor that uh, disagrees with whatever the, the the college happens to favor on a given Tuesday. But this this internet stuff is going to be not just medical doctors, right? Because currently, the freedom of speech for the average Canadian is not hugely threatened, as far as I can tell. We can. It's threatened more by self censorship, where people are terrified of you know. They want to be politically correct. They don't want to say something that's politically incorrect. They don't want to be called out as hateful, homophobic bigots. So there's a lot of self-censorship going on in Canada. But the state of the law itself is uh, there. there's actually <laughs> we have lots of freedom of expression in Canada right now. We hope to keep it. I, I noted that there's lots of stories in the media about hate in Canada. And again, uh, it pops up every few years that uh, the media decides to publicize the fact that Canada is a boiling cauldron of hate. And the most recent one, I think, was with the leader of the NDP getting heckled. Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, was out on stumping for some Ontario uh, MPP. And uh, somebody, what, called him a traitor. And uh, this, of course, you know, has been taken as uh, hatred and racial hatred, et cetera, et cetera even though I think that uh, many people don't like him because he is supporting the minority government, carte blanche. So do you see this as sort of delving into the law of hate here? You know, when they, uh, somebody yells at somebody when they're giving a speech that, uh, you know, this is uh, something that you might call, I don't know what, hatred, terrorism? No, it's, it's just political jeering, isn't it? It's not like we're chucking tomatoes at the guy. Yeah, which which would be a criminal code offense to throw an object at somebody, and I also I, I completely disagree with with that being in any way an acceptable political tactic. I mean, I, a long time ago, uh, twenty years ago, uh, Alberta Premier Ralph Klein he got a pie in the face by some protester, some woman, you know, kind of came up to the crowd and quickly walked up to the premier and threw pie in his face. Yeah, it was kind of a thing back then. Lots of pies around the world actually were being thrown at politicians. And I, my comment on that was it was was totally wrong, even though some people kind of, you know, a little bit lighthearted and ha-ha. And it's like, no, you know, that's an assault. You don't touch another person, not by way of punch in the face and not by way of a pie either. So my question about the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh in Peterborough stumping for an NDP candidate, this is, I guess, in, in anticipation of the provincial election that will be taking place right. in Ontario. And if somebody said that, you know, that, that, that they were going to kill 
Jagmeet Singh, or he ought to be killed, or I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to harm you, or I'm going to find out where you live, or uh, uttering threats like that, that's a criminal code offense. I think that's completely, totally unacceptable. And I would hope that anybody that, that does that would be prosecuted. You don't have the right to threaten to harm people. And, and, and I, I think it's a very reasonable. Is that a restriction on your freedom of expression? Absolutely. It's a criminal code offense to utter threats. You cannot threaten people, cannot threaten to kill them, attack them, beat them up, destroy their property. If you utter a threat, uh, that's criminal code offense. And I think it should be. And I think that's fine uh, because that's not the kind of society. I think that's a restriction on free speech. It's very narrow. It's very targeted. It's very specific. It's very clear if you're doing it or not. Now, if people, conversely, if people are calling out to sing and if they see him as a traitor because he's, for whatever reason, maybe he's, you know, betrayed the working man truckers who want to, you know, have a job without being pressured into getting a, a vaccine for which there's no long-term safety data. And so, you know, if somebody thinks that Mr. Singh is a traitor to truckers or a traitor to the common man or a traitor to the working man or a traitor to NDP supporters, you know, if somebody wants to call him a health fascist who's, uh, you know, taking away our rights and freedoms by making it illegal for unvaccinated people to fly on airplanes. If somebody wants to call him a traitor, okay, not nice, but that's not something that calls for a police inquiry or police conduct or whatever. Right. So I stand to be corrected insofar as I don't, you know, I wasn't there. The media coverage on it was pretty minimal. I don't know what was said, but I I will say if it was a genuine uttering threats, I hope that the police would prosecute. I would say it's completely unacceptable, but if it's just, you know, jeering and calling him a traitor, it's like, well, uh, that's just par for the course. And I'm not sure what would make that hate speech. It certainly doesn't fit the criminal code definition, which is, willfully promote hatred against an identifiable group based on that group's religion, race, sexual orientation, gender, blah, 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 blah. So calling somebody a traitor is not, it's not willful promotion of hatred. Well, it seems to be, in my view, sort of part and parcel with, like I say, this revival of the notion that Canada is a bubbling cauldron of hatred. There are stories like the, uh, Edmonton and Ontario hate crimes laws uh, were exercised uh, to record levels. You know, there were record number of hate crimes in Ontario and Edmonton, that kind of thing. This happens, uh, I noted when I was doing a search, it seems to happen every two, three years. So I'm not sure if that's all it is. It's just, uh, you know, the regular coverage or whether they are trying to ramp it up as justification for, uh, you know, their law approaching hatred on the internet. I'm not sure, but I do see it coincidental anyway. I just want to make that observation. I'll stick a couple of links in our show notes to these stories as well. So, Speaking of hate, uh, this panel of uh, so-called experts that the federal government appointed on on March 30th, at the top of the list is Bernie Farber, chair of the Canada Anti-Hate Network. Uh, He was recently in the news over a false tweet saying that there is anti-Semitic literature distributed in Ottawa during the uh, peaceful truckers protest in February. And 
he was exposed uh, because the, the image that uh, Bernie Farber posted was identical to a photo posted on Twitter weeks earlier by someone in Miami, Florida. So journalist Jonathan Kay highlighted this and he said, wow, Bernie, isn't it incredible that the picture of your friend in Ottawa at the truckers protest sent you is identical to the photo posted on Twitter two weeks ago by someone in Miami, right down to the ceramic design in the background. So yeah. <laughs> this was, by the way, this was a flyer that said something along the lines of every, uh, every anti-COVID policy is Jewish or, you know, the violation of our rights and freedoms is Jewish or worse to that effect. So trying to say that the, the lockdown policies were, uh, you know, Jewish inspired or coordinated or orchestrated. And, uh, which yeah, they, uh, places that don't like him now refer to him as a hoaxer <laughs> because of that. <laughs> he goes way back in the whole, uh, anti hate movement. You know, he goes back to the nineties. I mean, it's a very clever ploy. I mean, who, who favors, you know, who, who favors racism and hatred? Uh, people, the people that do are pretty small in number. So they got the Canada Anti-Hate Network. I mean, nobody can disagree with that title. I mean, that that's wonderful. But they use that slogan as um, as a means to to undermine the free society by attacking our freedoms of expression and association and religion and conscience, so on and so forth. No other names of the 12 experts that uh, jumped out at me, but they are in that March 30th story. So... Eight I, out of twelve are professors. Okay, and this this uh, you know this reminds me of what uh, William F. Buckley once said: "I should sooner live in a society governed by the first two thousand names in the Boston Telephone Directory than in a society governed by the two thousand faculty members of Harvard University." Now that sounds more shocking than what it is. If you listen to the clarification, it's nuanced. Uh, William F. Buckley goes on to say, not heaven knows because I hold lightly the brain power or knowledge or generosity or even the affability of the Harvard faculty, but rather because I greatly fear intellectual arrogance. And that is a distinguishing characteristic of the university, which refuses to accept any common premise. And I'm with, uh, I'm with William F. Buckley on this. I, sh I should sooner live in a society governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than in a society governed by the 2,000 faculty members of Harvard University. It's not to slam the university. It's to recognize that they have good minds. They should be consulted. Uh, but when we put these people in charge of society, we can lose all common sense and the problem with this, so, so this committee has eight, eight out of 12 people are professors. Uh, the ninth, we've got Bernie Farber, chair of the Canada Anti-Hate Network. We've got Cheney Parsons, community activist. Uh, it's not sure if that's a good thing or not. Kind of vague. Leanna McDonald, executive director, Canadian Center for Child Protection. Okay. Well, probably on the panel to, you know, for expertise with, with one of the, Areas being the uh, sharing intimate images non-consensually, or sorry, the child exploitation uh, part of it. If you had to set up a panel to advise the minister on bringing in laws that controlled various things on the internet, would it be a jury of your peers? Uh, what would be? Uh, who would be on the panel? What type of people would you recommend? 
I mean, it's great. We're criticizing the, uh, the fact that there are so many experts here, but what would you do? Would you just draw names out of a hat? Would you look for people who weren't necessarily affiliated with universities? Just, uh, well, the problem, the problem here is not, it's this particular panel to begin with, right? The whole purpose Mm. of the panel is to give advice to the federal government on how to restrict our freedom of expression and how to find the right excuses, the right pretexts uh, for doing so. And blatantly ignoring the fact that, you know, again, uh, hate speech and terrorism and child pornography and child prostitution are all criminal offenses. Uh, inciting violence is a criminal offense. So uh, this is a panel that is set up for the very sinister purpose of putting an academic gloss, uh, an intellectual veneer on uh, government restrictions of our speech. So I wouldn't, you know, if it was some other panel, there's all kinds of issues that you could appoint panels on. And I I don't think it's anything wrong with including some professors on a panel. But the problem I have here is is with the panel itself more so than than uh, than who is on it. The other thing that uh, you and I were talking about this before the podcast, so I'll give credit to you uh, for this idea that the panel well, might come you. out. The panel might come out with really outrageous recommendations that you know, oh yeah, they're, you know, government's going to have the right to monitor everybody's email to make sure that nobody's saying anything hateful. And, you know, anybody that if you want to set up a website, you first have to register with the federal government and you have to get permission for your website. Like they're going to come out with these outrageous recommendations that are over the top. And then the government is going to accept, you know, two thirds or one half or one third or one quarter of these recommendations and say, oh, you know, we're being so reasonable. And because then when the government does restrict our freedom of expression with new legislation, they're going to look very moderate and reasonable because they are uh, rejecting three quarters of the <laughs> recommendations of the committee. Right. Is that, well, that kind of what you said? That's we what I said. But, the it comes, yeah. I used to see that when I was uh, working as a journalist, you know, there'd be groups set up to push the envelope, really. They they were supposed to be way out there so that the politicians can come along and say, oh, no, no, we're not going to be that extreme. The experts, as smart as they are, you know, <laughs> we will not go that far. We will only go this far, which is their goal, that where they're going is where they're going to, they wanted to go from the beginning, but they hired this uh either this a publicity group or whatever to make these suggestions that uh, would freak everybody out. It's a bargaining tactic kind of, you know, so it's like asking for a, you know, a higher price when you actually want a lower price. So you overestimate anyways, that's where it comes from. Long observation, very common and uh, well-worn tactic. So, well, we'll see. So, you know, you heard it here first on uh, justice with John in uh, in the month of May, that the uh, this panel of so-called experts is going to come out with uh, outrageous recommendations to severely restrict our freedom of speech, and then the government can reject that and just limit our freedom of speech to a smaller extent and look like they're pretty moderate while doing so. When in fact, it's yeah. it, it is outrageous. It doesn't necessarily have to happen that way, but as soon as I saw this article on May 11th, where they're talking about ramping it up, looking at smaller platforms and, you know, regulating even private online conversations. I thought, okay, yeah, that's what, that's what they're doing. They're pushing it to the edge and, uh, you know, the government's going to 
come in and, oh, we saved you from those experts. Well, I know we got a lot of press releases coming out over the last while, and uh, we won't better get to some of these and talk about some of the things that the Justice Center is doing because it's a busy, busy time. John, do you want to take us through the most recent ones? Or at least, uh, you know, start us off with, I don't know if you want to start with the, the older ones or the newer ones. Well, we've got uh, Craig Nigard of Solista, British Columbia, and he is a volunteer firefighter. And the Justice Center has sent a legal warning letter on his behalf to the Columbia Shoe Swap Regional District. So this, if you can picture kind of central east British Columbia. And the volunteer firefighters are not allowed to do their good work unless they've been injected with the uh, with the COVID vaccine. And this is just more... This is ideology, again, where mm-hmm. there's just this fixation... We've got this fanatical belief that COVID is, uh, you know, the only grave evil in the world. And it doesn't matter how much damage we inflict. Houses can burn down for want of volunteer firefighters because, you know, in the bigger, I, I don't know if Calgary has volunteer firefighters. It, it probably does. But I, I would venture a guess that in the smaller centers, the volunteer firefighters are even more important than in a larger city like like Calgary or Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, where you've got the fire departments that are ready at the beck and call. So there's this ideology, you know, let the houses burn down if necessary, but we got to get all these volunteer firefighters uh, injected with uh, with COVID vaccine. That's uh, just idiotic. Just generally speaking, I don't need to know about this particular letter, but when you send a warning letter to someone in a situation where they're demanding somebody take a vaccine, what are you basically telling them? Are you telling them, no, you can't do that? Or are you saying it's a charter violation of my personal sovereignty, bodily autonomy? What are you exactly saying? These so the core purpose is to – we have sent the Justice Center in the past 11 and a half years, we have sent warning letters to – universities, especially the first few years that was we had a big focus on campus free speech, to law societies, to colleges of physicians and surgeons, to municipal governments, federal governments, provincial governments, governmental authorities. We write a letter and we outline what the government's obligations are to respect charter rights and freedoms. And different legal warning letters will be differently worded. At the very end, uh, some of them will say, take heed, take notice, because if you don't, we're going to have to look at possibly taking legal action against you. So those are kind of the milder ones. And sometimes they're very strongly worded. They're saying, you know, you have to repeal, we're giving you to 4.30 p.m. this Friday to repeal the policy, failing which we're going to sue you. And if we make that kind of a warning that's very specific, we will follow through and we will sue. So the legal warning letter, they're similar in their content. And then there's different kinds kind of in the last line. Like some of them, it's a warning shot across the bow uh, just to say, hey, you know, heads up, you are violating charter rights and freedoms. And often that's good enough. And they take it to their own legal department. Although that doesn't work when the legal department itself is not appreciative of charter values, (laughs) which can happen too. Sure. So this this warning letter is posted. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but the letter itself is posted on our website. So if you want to see what kind of an ending it has, whether it's the kind that says change your policy or else we'll sue you versus, you know, uh, more of a, a friendly reminder, you can read it at www.jccf.ca. 
Yeah, just remind me, I know we have discussed at some point in the last two years, uh, are these letters part of the process? Do they have to be issued in order for you to initiate a suit? Do you have to send the letter first in a charter violating situation? No. However, it's it's good for at least two reasons. One is it's nice to resolve matters without spending tens of thousands of dollars or some or hundreds of thousands of dollars of our resources on a court action if you can solve it by way of a letter. Uh, that's one advantage. can save on money. Secondly, it saves on time. If you send the letter and they respond, problem is solved as opposed to once you get into litigation, unfortunately, it, t- it can take years to uh, uh, to get through uh, that process. Another reason to write the letter is that it can go into the record that you put before the court. And so it's not absolutely required. Okay, so so if a municipal, provincial, federal government has a law or policy that, that violates charter rights and freedoms, you can just follow a court action straight away. But if you can write a letter and you tell the government, you know, you need to change your policy because it is a violation of charter rights and freedoms, you can say to the court, you know, we asked them to to change it and they didn't. And that can be a good thing to uh, to show the court how reasonable you were. It also can show that the government to be very unreasonable if the government doesn't respond to the letter, doesn't answer questions, doesn't try to justify it. If the government behaves like a, an arrogant jerk, that can be unhelpful to the government in the litigation. Okay. That's all the questions I have about that one. Next. Justice Center retains prominent trial lawyer to defend soldiers who refuse COVID vaccine. So here we have another uh, court action. We've retained um, Philip Millar or Philip Miller. I don't know. I should know how it's pronounced and I don't. Uh, but he was formerly in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so he knows all of their laws and rules and regulations very, very well. And uh, he's representing 15 Canadian Armed Forces members who are facing discipline and possible job loss over their refusal to take the COVID vaccine for which there's no long-term safety data. I was told by somebody a few months ago, I should not refer to the vaccine as experimental because uh, that just sounds so far out of touch with what people are thinking. So don't use that term. So I've stopped using the term experimental. And now I just state the very simple fact that there is no long-term safety data on these vaccines. It's a fact. I'm sorry. doesn't matter how much you love these vaccines. You cannot disagree with me when I say that there's no long-term safety data. So uh, this is a um, a court action that uh, is going to be forthcoming. It has not yet been uh, filed and served, but we've made the announcement that we will be taking the federal government and the Canadian Armed Forces to to court over their wrongful treatment. Uh, Next, we've had a case of the Crown dropping a ticket against a woman who refused a PCR test. Uh, in early 2021, Ms. C, uh, she wants some anonymity, so we just say her last name begins with a C. Ms. C of Chilliwack, British Columbia, traveled to the U.S. to receive medical treatment. She came back in September 2021, arrived at the border, was told to take a PCR test. She politely and respectfully declined on grounds of bodily autonomy and personal health 
And namely, she had been suffering with a staph infection and um, in a significant staph infection in her nasal passage. And she just suffered a thyroid flare-up requiring an emergency room visit. She had a prescription for antibiotics that had not yet been filled. She was concerned about going the uh, undergoing the PCR test because they'd be shoving something into her nose that was suffering from a serious infection. And so the border guard was uh, completely unsympathetic and issued her a ticket for $5,750. Yeah. So $5,750. But again, you know, this might even be reasonable and justifiable if COVID, I, I have to go back to the big lie that the media continue to promote that COVID is like the the bubonic plague of med, you know that killed a third of medieval Europe, or it's like the Spanish flu of of 1918. There's the big lie continues to be promoted by the prime minister and the premiers and the chief medical officers. The big lie that that COVID is something that everybody should be afraid of, when in fact you know yes, it's worse than the annual flu, but it has not significantly impacted life expectancy amongst Canadians. The death rates in 2020 were in line with the death rates in 2019. We've not seen the coming to fruition of the predictions of Dr. Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, March of 2020, saying that, you know, over 300,000 Canadians would die of COVID within the next few months. You know, this fear-mongering. And the reason I mention all of that is because when, when here you are, September 2021, like we knew from the data you know, by April of 2020, by May of 2020, one or two months after lockdown started, we knew that COVID was not this unusually deadly killer that Neil Ferguson was making it out to be. We knew that, right? So here mm. this ticket takes place in September of 2021. So go figure, April, May, June, July, August, September. So 18 months into this, if you're going to give somebody a $5,750 ticket for not taking a PCR test, that all stems from... The big lie that COVID is this thing that everybody should be absolutely terrified of, that we need to, you know, fanatically be on this mission to to punish people for not taking a PCR test. That doesn't even get into how meaningless and unreliable the PCR tests are, because you could have a piece of COVID up your nose from six months ago, and you test positive for COVID, and you're 100% healthy, and, and you're not spreading it. So, I mean, the PCR test is not even useful. You know, mm. it's it's like a it's it's like some cult ritual and virtue signaling is oh you know we got to go through the PCR test and if not you get a five thousand seven hundred and fifty dollar fine. fine. Yeah. Well, thank heaven for for the crown for dropping that one. Thank heaven sorry. for the justice center for taking on this oh, woman's sorry. case to to. I don't think the crown would drop this, but they don't want to go to bat. They don't want to take this case before a judge where a woman has, you know, a staph infection uh, in her nasal passage and is suffering a thyroid flare-up and has a serious medical condition for which she need a treatment in the United States, blah, 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 blah. This is not a case that the Crown wants to put before the judge and ask the judge to, in, to inflict a $5,750 ticket on this woman. So Okay, I revise. Thank heavens for the Justice Center. For the Justice Center, yeah. The Crown, the Crown was uh, doing the right thing, but... I'm not sure we need to thank heaven for them. Okay. So students expelled for declining COVID injections. Uh, student singular false human rights complaint against NAIT, N-A-I-T, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology in Edmonton, Alberta. And the student was in a two-year architectural technology program and was effectively 
kicked out of the program, had submitted a religious exemption request, and this was denied on grounds that Nate took it upon itself to decide that this wasn't actually part of the student's religious faith. It's very, very arrogant. So the Justice Center has assisted the student in uh, filing a human rights complaint. Well, that's interesting, human rights complaint, because, you know, universities, I think, at least in Alberta, are governed by the charter. But a technology institute would be under the human rights complaint. Maybe you could just quickly go over the, the distinction there. Well, you can. There, there are two separate remedies. You could, you could pursue both. I mean, a student could oh, okay. commence. A student could commence a uh, court action. This student could sue the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology over violating his charter right to bodily autonomy. So, Section Seven of the Charter protects the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Courts have interpreted life, liberty, and security of the person as including a right to bodily autonomy. A right to bodily autonomy includes a right to decide what you will or will not be injected with. You choose your own medical treatments, you choose your own vaccinations. So if you have a government body like the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, if you have a government body that is pressuring you to take this COVID vaccine on threat of expulsion, Effectively, I mean, it might not technically be called expulsion, but you know, you can't continue with the program. You're you're getting kicked out of school unless you take the vaccine. So that's government putting pressure on you. So that violates your charter right to bodily autonomy. So you can go to court and you can ask for a court declaration that this government body has wrongfully, unjustifiably violated your right to bodily autonomy. You can do that. You can also uh, file a human rights complaint and say this is discrimination based on uh, religion because he's got a religious uh, – this, this student uh, objects to the use of aborted fetal cell lines in the testing and development of the vaccines and insists that accepting these shots would violate his conscience and his religious responsibility. Now, under the Alberta Human Rights Act, Nate – Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, has a duty to accommodate religious differences to the point of undue hardship. So undue hardship means that an institution, a business, a college, a university, you have to accommodate somebody's disability or their religious belief or their ethnicity or their religion to the point of undue hardship. So, you know, what this would mean, for example... I don't know. If there was a Muslim that said, my religion requires me to take five short breaks a day to pray, if you were like a small business and you only had one employee and the employee and the store had to be shut down two or three times during the day for five minutes at a time for the employee to go say his prayers, as a small business, you might be able to say, well, it's going to impose an undue hardship on my business to have to close down the business three times a day, right? Conversely, if you were a large business and there's an employee that said, I need three 10 minutes, 10 minute breaks a day to go away and pray, well, is it going to impose undue hardship on your business to accommodate the religious need of that person? Right. And the answer, depending on the business, but you know, probably not. You've, if you've got right. 20 or 50 employees, you can probably have one of those 20 or 50 employees take off three times a day for three uh, prayer breaks. Right. Whereas a, a small business might win the human rights thing and say, well, really, we, we can't just shut down the business because uh, that's our sole employee that's, that's manning the place. 
Okay. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's undue hardship. So Nate has to accommodate the student's religious convictions. So the student has a religious conviction that he cannot take this COVID vaccine because its contents or developments are derived from or in so associated with or involved with the uh, aborted fetal cells. So Nate has to show that admitting this student into Nate is going to cause Nate undue hardship. <clears throat> and would accommodation include things like video and uh, you know, video conferencing classes, Zoom classes, that kind of thing? That's another thing that uh, colleges and universities are, uh, are are obligated to do is to um, – you know, to provide that. Now they can argue for certain types of classes. I mean, maybe this student was pursuing an architectural technology program. I don't know how much hands-on work is required. My guess would be not very much. <laughs> this mm -hmm. this architectural uh, technology. Now, if it was a veterinarian program where, you know, you've got to get your hands inside of the cow to help pull the calf out because that's part of your training. You know, the college could say, well, we're, we want to have a uh, solid uh, professional development and all of these students are required to be, you know, handling the animals and touching the animals. And we can't all do this via zoom, right? That would be different. So yeah, okay. it would depend, would depend on the program. Okay. Another very interesting new development. In one of the Justice Center's cases, we were representing a local Calgary activist by the name of Brad Kerrigan. Brad Kerrigan has organized and attended weekly rallies against lockdowns throughout 1920, 21. Uh, he's done dozens of these uh, quite faithfully, even in 40 below weather. Well, 20 below weather. I, I don't know all the temperatures, but you know, Calgary, like many Canadian cities, is, is cold in the wintertime. On December the 26th, 2020, he was arrested after uh, one of the rallies held in police custody overnight and charged with disobeying public health order. So the Justice Center took on his case, as we've taken on the case of many people that were peacefully protesting outdoors and issued tickets. And um, our staff lawyer, Adam Kerr, argued that the ticket was issued for violating a health order prohibition on private social gatherings. And so the Justice Center's lawyer argued that this outdoor public rally was not a private social gathering. So the court agreed with the Justice Center, and so this ticket was thrown out. Uh, so that was a quick and easy victory. I mean, if, uh, you know, ultimately if push comes to shove, we will take it all the way and, and subpoena the chief medical officer to come and justify the health order and as to why it was justified, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is a good precedent if there are other people who were issued tickets for peacefully protesting at public outdoor gatherings. If the health order under which they were issued a ticket says private social gathering, then these tickets would also get thrown out. Now, right. unfortunately, I don't know how widespread the precedent will be because if there's a subsequent health order that says, uh, right, because these things, you know, get changed like laundry. I mean, it's just, you know, every, yeah. every week, every month, we've had so many of these. If there was a different health order that expressly banned public outdoor protests or if it banned outdoor gatherings of, you know, more than 10 people, if that was the language in the health order, 
and you got a ticket under that, well, then this precedent would not apply, right? Uh, I know that this did get addressed in the uh, in Dina Hinshaw's uh, testimony, actually, when she pointed out that they hadn't actually addressed that particular situation in the initial order. So subsequently, they gave an order which they claim allowed for public protests, explicitly said that you're allowed to do it outside. So eventually they did sort of correct their mistake. But uh, obviously uh, there were some people that got caught up in their mistake. And shame on the police. Shame on the police who should read the order. So when the order said that private social gatherings were prohibited, you know, the police police are the first line. Uh, yeah. I, I expect, and every Canadian can reasonably expect, the police to think carefully before they issue tickets. Uh, especially, too, you know, sometimes I've heard police say, well, they could just take it to court and, uh, you know, and the judge will decide. Well, it's not quite that simple because if you are a citizen on the receiving end of a ticket, you've got to take a day off work or a half day off work to go to court and effectively to defend yourself against the charges. Whereas when policemen are called into court, they get paid. So it's a day's work. So that's not a level playing field at all. And, you know, we had this situation with, uh, there were some, um, a few years ago, the Edmonton police, and they might, I, I think they might still be doing this, but they were ticketing street preachers that were on a sidewalk that had some modest amplification and that were, you know, doing Christian preaching of the gospel, not a popular message. And we had situations in, in Edmonton where somebody on one street corner, they had their amplification system was cranked up way higher. They're quite loud, but they're playing music. And the music they're playing is not, you know, that controversial. And then on the opposite corner, you got a street preacher with far lower amplification. But people don't like the contents of what this guy is saying, or they don't like the flyers that he's hanging out. So Edmonton police come along, they ticket the street preacher, and they say, well, you're violating noise bylaws. And it's like, okay, but, you know, the guy over there is playing far louder. Well, you know, why is he not getting uh, a ticket? Well, you know, there aren't any complaints against him. And besides, it doesn't really matter because you can just go to court and plead not guilty. And so we had acquittal after acquittal after acquittal. Uh, no, we had, we had the Crown withdrawing charges. Which so basically never got to court then. Is what never got to court. And then there was one that we did get to court and, and we won. We got an acquittal. That, uh, you know, so I don't know if, if the police misconduct there has slowed down uh, afterwards. But my point is, and I'm, I'm sympathetic, you know, being a policeman's a hard job and you got to put up with rude people and it can be dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, just because it's a hard job, it's also a very well-paying job. And policemen need to think, think about the charter and they need to think before they issue tickets. So here you've got a case this ticket should not have been issued to Brad Kerrigan in the first place when the health order banned private social gatherings and he was holding a public outdoor protest. The police should have thought this through more in the first place and so not issued a ticket in the first place. Uh, but we've, we've got a Calgary police chief who is hostile to charter freedoms and I've publicly criticized him in the past by, by saying that, you know, oh, yeah, we should all, uh, no, nobody should protest uh, peacefully uh, outside. We should just all accept 
<laughs> all Your of these of the violation, violations of the Charter Rights and Freedoms, we should all just comply comply with uh, with the health orders. Well, that's ridiculous. The way to to fight these unscientific and irrational health orders, in respect of which governments have not presented any persuasive evidence that they've saved any lives, the way to fight them is to protest peacefully. And uh, it's the charter that's the highest law of the land. So anyway, uh, this is a problem with some police services. They're not very friendly to the charter. Yes. Well, thank heaven for the Justice Center. I got it right that time. Stop saying that. It's getting it's getting annoying. Thank heaven. Well, thank heaven for Wait till all. I start the- asking for money. <laughs> thank heaven for the Justice Center donors, without which there would be no oh, yeah. Justice Center. We would not have our fifteen staff lawyers and our twelve paralegals, and uh, uh, so on and so forth, doing all actually. This good yeah, work. going through all these cases is kind of a salute to those people in a way, because this is exactly what. Uh, you're getting for your donation, you're getting actual action happening here. And that's what the Justice Center is all about. It's not about the podcast. It's about getting into court and getting those people free from government overreach. So in uh, back to drop tickets again in British Columbia, uh, the Crown has dropped another 24 tickets against three BC pastors who refuse to shutter their churches. In this particular fact scenario, by the way, this is this is interesting. We, we've represented different clients, you know, with with different fact situations. We we acted for Pastor Pastor James Coates of um, Grace Life Church near Edmonton, Alberta, and his church was not obeying these health orders of you know the, the masking and the antisocial distancing, as I call it. Now, these BC tickets. This was a different situation. The BC government closed all houses of worship. In British Columbia, churches were closed entirely. They didn't jail any pastors. We leave that special uh, distinction to Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, the only premier in Canada to jail pastors uh, because his government chose to go to court and obtain injunctions, which changed the whole law enforcement dynamic. So our clients in BC were churches that opened, but they followed health protocols and strictly adhered to masking and social distancing and capacity limits. But what they did was they behaved in a manner similar to the rules, because at that time in British Columbia, if you were a gym or a restaurant, you could be open, you know, but subject to some masking, social distancing, this, that, and the other thing. Gyms and restaurants were open. Mosques and synagogues and churches were closed. So I think it's anti-religious bigotry on the part of uh Dr. Bonnie Henry, the the chief medical officer in British Columbia. So these churches uh, were operating with all these, you know, safety precautions in place. So one of the pastors was facing charges on 23 tickets with $52,900 in files. That was Pastor John Koopman of Chilliwack Free Reform Church. Then we had Pastor James Butler of Free Grace Baptist Church. He had tickets totaling $57,500. And then there's Pastor Timothy Champ of Valley Heights Community Church uh, facing tickets, 18 tickets totaling $41,400. So good grief, that's, you know, a hundred and something thousand dollars. And so the Crown, because of the Justice Center representing these pastors, no doubt, because I think if if these pastors were not getting the legal representation, I think the the crown would be uh, taking this to court and uh, seeking convictions. 
But I think their legal position's weak. I mean, how can you justify total closures of churches when uh, you're keeping restaurants and gyms o- open? Okay. And the very last point is that we have a court date of September 19th in federal court uh, for the hearing of the actions of Premier Brian Peckford, who is challenging the federal unscientific bigotry of banning the vaccine-free from getting onto an airplane. In similar fashion, court action that the Justice Center is, is also acting in a separate court action for Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, who, as a political party leader, needs to travel out and about. So and those are actually consolidated. They're part yeah. of the consolidation of cases. Okay, right. So that's going to be a big one, yeah. So there's a, a timetable. You can find that at www.jccf.ca. Timetable is set out for the different stages of finishing cross-examinations and our experts getting cross-examined and us uh, cross-examining the government's witnesses, etc., and so it's going to be heard in September, and uh, I just really hope that uh, the courts are going to look at the evidence, and I think the federal government's going to be hard-pressed for <laughs> why do we still have this this policy in place now to uh, to ban the unvaccinated from, uh, from getting onto airplanes when we all know the vaccines didn't stop the Delta variant, they didn't stop Omicron, uh, they haven't stopped people from getting covid and the vaccine manufacturers themselves have stated publicly the vaccine does not stop the spread. So we know all of this. So I think we've got these mandates in place. Just as a political punishment to punish an unpopular minority, namely those who have not taken the, the COVID shots, who have yeah, been described yeah. by the prime minister as anti-science, uh, racist, misogynist extremists. Yeah, and some pundits have said that uh, it's being used as a wedge issue, a political wedge issue, which certainly means that it's not scientifically justified at any rate. Okay, that's great. I'm glad to hear that we got all these things on the go. And uh, great talking to you again, John. Thanks a lot for being here for Episode 19 of Justice with John Carpe. Look forward to talking to you next week. Talk to you next week, Kevin. Take care. Take care.